0: Welcome to the RE Human Layer Security Podcast, the show that flips the script on cybersecurity. I'm Tim Sadler, the CEO and co-founder of Tessian. And in each episode, I'll be interviewing IT and business leaders about why we need to protect people, not just machines and data, to stop breaches and empower businesses to achieve their missions. We have a fascinating episode lined up for you this week as I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Karen Renault and Dr. Marc Dupuy. Dr. Renault is an esteemed professor and computing scientist from Abate University, whose research focuses on all aspects of human-centered security and privacy. Through her work, she says she wants to improve the boundary where humans and cybersecurity meet. And Dr. Dupuy is an assistant professor within the Computing and Software Systems Division at the University of Washington, Bothell. He also specializes in the human factors of cybersecurity, primarily examining psychological traits and their relationship to the cybersecurity and privacy behavior of individuals. And together they are exploring the use of fear appeals in cybersecurity, answering questions like whether they work or are there more effective ways to drive behavioral change. They recently shared their findings in the Wall Street Journal, a brilliant article titled Why Companies Should Stop Scaring Employees About Security. And they're here today to shed some more light on the topic. Karen, Mark, welcome to the RE Human Layer Security podcast.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: Great. Well, to kick things off, let's discuss that Wall Street Journal article in which you essentially concluded that fear and scaremongering just don't work when it comes to encouraging people to practice safer cybersecurity behaviors. So why is this the case?
2: Well, I think one of the interesting things, if we look at the use of fear, fear is an emotion and emotions are inherently short-term type of affect. And so in some research that I did um, about eight years ago, one thing I looked at was trait affect, which is a generally stable, lifelong type of affect and tried to understand how it relates to how individuals, whether in an organizational setting or home setting, how they perceive uh, you know, a threat, a cybersecurity threat, um, as well as their belief in being able to take protective measures to try and address that threat and one of the interesting things from that research was how important the role of uh, self-efficacy was but more uh, perhaps more importantly the relationship between trait positive affect and self-efficacy and so what trait positive affect is generally feelings of of happiness and, and positivity in one's affect and so what this gets at is the higher levels of positivity we have with respect to trait affect, the more confident we feel in being able to take protective measures. So how this relates to fear is if we need people to take protective measures and we know that their self-efficacy, the level of confidence in being able to do so is related to uh, positive affect, why then are we continually going down the road of using fear, a short-term emotion? To try and engender behavioral change, and so that uh, was a you know interesting conversation that Karen and I had, and um, and then we started you know thinking about well let's take a look at the role of fear specifically.
0: And Karen, what would you what would you add to that?
1: Um, well, it, it you know I I'd, I'd seen Mark's background, and I'd always wanted to look at fear because I don't like to be scared into doing things. Personally, and I suspect i'm not unusual in that, and when we started to look at the literature, we it just confirmed that businesses were trying to use a short term measure to solve a long term problem yeah and, and so wh- yeah
0: I, I was going to say why do you think that is and you know it, it almost seems um, using fear is just such a sort of default approach in so many in so many things you know when we think about how uh you know, I'm thinking about how people sell insurance and, you know, it's the fear. to try and drive people to believe that, hey, your home's going to get burgled tomorrow. You better get insurance so you can protect against the bad thing happening. Um, why do you think companies actually just go to fear as this um, almost carrot to get people to do what they're supposed to do?
1: It, it feels to me as if um, the thing that intuitively you think will work is often doesn't work. So, you know, those nasty pictures they put on the side of cigarette packets actually are not very effective in stopping heavy smokers. So whereas somebody who doesn't smoke thinks, oh, my gosh, this is definitely going to scare people and we're going to get behavioral change, it actually doesn't work. So sometimes intuition is just wrong. And I think in this case, it's it's a case of not really uh, doing the research the way we did to say, actually, this is probably not effective, but going, well, intuitively, this is going to work. You know they used to um when I was at school they used to wallop kids to get them to study. Now we know that that was really a bad thing to do that children don't learn when they're afraid, right So we should start taking those lessons from education and applying them in the rest of our lives as well.
0: yeah, I think it's a really good call up. Um, it's almost like we need we just generally as society need to do better at understanding actually how these kind of fear appeals uh, work and engage with people and then maybe if we just go a layer deeper into um, this concept of like fear tactics having, you know, uh, people be- becoming immune to fear tactics. Um, it seems like 2020 was a really bad year. A lot of people faced heightened levels of stress and anxiety as a result of the pandemic and all of that change. Do you think that uh, this is playing a part in why fear appeals don't work?
1: Well, yeah, I think you're right. Um, when uh, the literature tells us that when People are targeted by a fear appeal. They can respond in one of two ways. They can either engage in a danger control response, which is kind of what the designer of the fear appeal is recommending they do. So, for example, if you don't make backups, you can lose all your photos if you get attacked. So, the person engaging in a danger control response will make the backups. So, they'll do as they're told. But they might also engage in a fear control response, which is the other option people can take. In this case, they don't like the feeling the fear. They don't like feeling that fear. And so they act to stop feeling it. So they attack the fear rather than the danger. So they might go into denial or get angry with you. The upshot is they will not take the recommended action. So if cybersecurity is all you have to worry about, you might say, okay, I'm going to engage in that danger control response. But we have so many fear appeals to deal with anyway. And the, in this year, past year, it's been over the top. So if you add of fear appeals to that, folks just say, can't be co- can't be doing with this. Mm. I'm not going to take this on board. So I think you're absolutely right. And people are fearful about other things as well as just COVID. Um, and so, you know, adding the layer to that. But what we also thought about was how ethical this actually is to, yeah. uh, to add to people's existing levels of anxiety and fear.
0: Do you you think that there's sort of a, uh, do you think it compounds? Do you think there's a a correlation between if people are already feeling, you know, naturally kind of anxious, stressed about a bunch of other stuff that actually adding one more thing to feel scared about is even less likely to have the intended results on changing their behavior?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think so. I, I think, you know, it just, it burns people out and you kind of get this repeated messaging and messaging. And and, you know one thing i, I think about just because we in, in the states just kind of got through this whole election cycle and maybe we're still in this election cycle but uh, where you know all these political ads are using fear time and time and time again and especially with political ads but i think in general people just start to tune out and they want to tune out they just want to be done with it um and so it's it's one of these things that um, I, I think just it's loses its efficacy and, and people just kind of have had enough and i i think to my i have a three and a half year old son and you know, I my my daughter w- was very good at listening to us if we said this is dangerous, don't do this. But my son, I'm like I'm like don't don't get up there, you're gonna crack your head open. Don't do this. And he and, and he's and he ignores me first of all, and then he does it anyway, and he doesn't crack his head open. And he says, "See, Daddy, I didn't crack my head open." And I'm like, "No." And it gets to another point of fear pills is we scare people, we try and and get them um, scared enough to do something. But when they don't do it, if nothing bad happens, it only uh, reinforces the idea that, oh, it can't be this bad anyway.
1: Yeah, you're right. Because the cause and the effect, so if you divulge your email address or your password somewhere and the attack is so far apart a lot of the time that you don't Mm -hmm. make that connection even. But it's really interesting if you look way back during the First Second World War, Germany decided to bomb the Daylights out of London and the idea was to make the Londoners so afraid that the British would capitulate. But what happened was a really odd thing. They became more defiant. And so we need to kind of look back at that sort of thing. And uh, Joe, uh, some, uh, somebody called McCurdy, who wrote a book about this. She said people got af- tired, afraid of being afraid. And so they just said, "No, I don't care how many bombs you're throwing on us. We're just not going to be afraid." Now, one day, if people have having so many. Fear appeals thrown at them that is just losing they're losing their efficacy.
0: I really um, it's a very timely example with the talking about the Blitz in uh, World War Two. I just finished reading uh, a book about exactly that, which is the resilience of the British people yeah. through that particular period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as you say, Karen, it was a, it, I, I, I knew very little about this this topic, but it absolutely had. The unintended consequence of bringing people together yeah. and um, really helping them almost—it almost was like the rallying cry for the country mm-hmm. to say, "We're not going to stand for this. We are going to. We are going to fight it." Um, and I guess everything you're saying is reinforced by the research you conducted as well, which completely makes sense. Which is, um, and I'm going to read from some notes here. Um, In the research paper, you surveyed CISOs about their own use of fear appeals in their organization, so how chief information security officers are actually engaging with their employees. Um, And it said 55% were against using fear appeals, uh, with one saying fear is known to paralyze normal decision-making and reactions. Um, 36% thought that fear appeals were acceptable, with one saying that fear is an excellent motivator. Um, and not a single CISO ranked scary messages as the most uh, effective technique. What were your thoughts on these findings? Were you surprised by them?
2: Uh, We were, I think, surprised that many of the CISOs in in fact were against the use of fear appeals. You look at these individuals that are the chief person responsible for the the information security of an organization and here they're coming out and telling us, yeah, we don't believe in using fear appeals. And there's multiple reasons for it is one, maybe they don't believe in the efficacy of it. But I think um, if we don't know how effective it's going to be, but we do know that it can also damage the uh, employee-employer relationship, and as well as some ethical issues related to it, you start to add up the possible negative ramifications of using fear pills. And it was interesting, even going back to that example um, during World War II, you, you think about why this was effective, uh, what, what England was doing, it's because they were in this together. They had this, this sense of uh, this, this communal response of, you know, we're, we're sick of being scared. We're in this together. We're going to fight in this together. And I think uh, maybe CISOs are starting to see that to try and, and help make the employee-employee relationship more positive and empower their employees rather than trying to scare them and hurt that relationship.
0: And there was one really interesting finding, um, again, which was you found that longer serving uh, CISOs, so those with more experience, were more likely to approve the use of cybersecurity fear appeals. Why do you think that is? Is fear maybe a kind of old school way of thinking about cybersecurity?
1: I I think as a CISO, it's really difficult to stay up to date with the latest research, the latest way of thinking. Um, They spend a lot of time keeping their finger on the pulse of cyber threat models, the compromises hackers are coming with. And but it, if you go and look at the research, the attitudes towards users is slowly changing. Um and maybe the people who approve of fair appeals aren't that aware of that. Or it might be they just become so exasperated by the behavior of their employees over the years that they just don't have the appetite for slower behavioral change mechanisms. Um, you know, and I understand that exasperation. But I was really quite heartened to see that the others said, no, this is not working, especially the younger ones. So you feel that that, that cultural change is happening.
0: One thing I was going to ask was there's this interesting concept of um, you know, the CISO themselves and whether they use fear appeals in their organisation. Do you think that's somewhat a function of how fear appeals are used to them, if that makes sense? like They have a board that they're reporting to, they have, um, you know, they have a boss, they have stakeholders that they've got to deliver results for, namely keep the organization secure, keep our data secure, keep our people secure. Do you think there's a relationship between how um, fear appeals are used to them in terms of how they use that then to others in their organization?
2: I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that's always possible. And, you know, I think a lot of times people default to what they know and what they're comfortable with and what they've experienced and so on. And maybe that's why we see some of the CISOs that have been in that role longer to kind of default to that. And, you know, some of it might be organizational structural as well. Like I said, if they are constantly being bombarded with, uh, you know, fear appeals by those that they report to, then maybe they are more likely to engage in fear appeals. You know, that, that, that question's a little unclear. Um, but I, I, I do think it's an interesting question because it, again, intuitively it, it makes sense. And I, and I can have a conversation with someone and, and, you know, and if I, if I try to make a case for using fear appeals, I don't have to make a case. The case is almost intuitively made in and of itself. Uh, but then trying to do the counter and say, well, maybe fear appeals don't work. And it, it's a much bigger leap to try and make that argument than I think than to try and say, well, yeah, let's, let's scare someone into doing something. Of course that's mm-hmm. going to work. Right.
0: I mean I think it's an interesting point just because we so often think of um I think it's just really important that we are also uh certainly in the context of of using fear appeals there is a role beyond the CISO as well and it's you know the role the board plays it's the Mm -hmm. the culture of the organization and how you set those individuals up for success like on one hand as a as a CISO, the sky is always falling. There is always some piece of bad news or or something that's uh um something that's going wrong or something you're defending. And um I think it's uh yeah again maybe there's something in that for thinking about how organizations can kind of empower their their CISO so that they can then go on to empower their people. Um, so shifting gears slightly we've spoken a lot about why Fear appeals are maybe not a good idea and how they are limited in their uh, effectiveness. But what is the alternative? So what advice would you give to uh, the listeners on this podcast about how they can improve employee cybersecurity behavior um, uh, through other means, especially as so many now working remotely?
1: Well, going back to what Mark was saying, I mean, we think like the key really is self-efficacy. Uh, you've got to build confidence in people um, and, and without making them afraid. And so a, a lot of the cybersecurity training that you get um, in organizations is a two-hour session that they bring everyone into a room and talk at them, or maybe people are, are required to do this online um, module, right? This is not self-efficacy. This is awareness, and there's a big difference. So the thing is um, you can't deliver cybersecurity knowledge and self-efficacy like a COVID vaccination. It's a long-term process and employers really have to engage with the fact that it is a long-term process and, um, you know, just keep building people's confidence and so on. But, you know, and maybe also, I mean, what were you you said earlier about the whole community effect, up to now, cybersecurity has been a solo game and it's not a tennis solo game, right? It's a team sport and we need to get all the people in the organization helping each other um, to, to, you know, to maybe spot phishing messages or whatever. But, you know, so make it a community sport, number one, and everybody supports each other in building that level of self-efficacy that we all need.
0: I love that. I really love that. And, um, yeah, I think we said it earlier, but, you know, just this concept of teamwork and, and coming together I think is so so important. Mark, would you, would you add anything to that in terms of just these alternative means to fear appeals that – um, leaders, CISOs, companies can think about um, using with their employees?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's not going to be one size fits all, but I think whatever approach we use, as Karen said, we really do need to tap into that self-efficacy. And by doing that, people are going to feel confident and empowered to be able to take action. Um, and we need to think about how people are motivated to take action. You know, and so fear is scaring them personally about the consequences they may face, you know, termination or fines or, or something else. Um, but if you start thinking about developing this, this you know, again as I mentioned before, being in this together, and this developing this intrinsic motivation that I'm not doing this because I'm, I'm fearful of the consequences so much. I'm doing this because you know we're we're all into this in, into this together, and we want to make uh, this this better for everyone. We want to you know have a good company. We want to be able to help each other. And we want to be able to take the actions that are necessary to make sure that we are secure. And we're, we're here tomorrow to be able to talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly what both of you are saying, which is that if somebody feels um, that they can't, if, if they don't have that self-efficacy, they're not going to raise things. They're not going to bring it forward. Um, and ultimately that's when disasters happen and, and things can go really bad. Um, and then I guess, What all this makes me think is that um, in principle, I love the idea of, um, you know, it makes complete sense that if you are striking fear into the hearts of people, it's not necessarily going to have the desired outcome 100% of the time, but isn't a little bit of fear needed? I mean, when I, of course it has to be used ethically, but when I'm thinking about just the nature of what organizations are facing, Today and we've you know we've just heard about the uh, solar winds hack and there are there are a number of others as well. These things are pretty scary, and the techniques that are being used are pretty scary. You know, isn't isn't a little bit of fear, uh, you know, required here? And is there any merit to, um, I guess, using that to make people understand the severity and the consequences of of what's at stake?
2: Yeah, I think there's a difference between fear and providing people with information that might inherently have a scary component to it. And so what I mean by that is when people are are often using fear appeals, they're doing it to scare people into complying with some specific goal. But if we instead provide information with people, which we should, we should, you know, let people know that here are some possible things that can happen, here are some possible consequences, but not with the goal of scaring them, but more with the goal of empowering them, giving them information so they know And again, then tapping into that self-efficacy more so than anything else, because then they, you know, they know that there's some kind of threat out here. They're not scared, but they know there's a threat. And if they feel empowered through, through knowledge and, and through that self-efficacy, then they're more likely to take that action as opposed to designing a message that's just designed to scare them into compliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. From your experience, um, can either of you think of you know are there are any really good examples of how um, it could be companies or campaigns that have um, maybe uh, built this kind of self-efficacy or you know really really empowered people um, without having to use fear as the uh, as the motivating factor?
1: I think I mentioned one of them in the paper. So there's this organisation that I'm familiar with, and um, they they had a major problem with phishing. Uh, so they appointed one person, and if anybody had a phishing message, they say, you were quite right to report this to me. Thank you so much for being part of the security perimeter of this organization, but it's fine, you can click. And this, over time, has actually built up efficacy. that They are, don't have phishing problems anymore in that organization because they have this person, and it's almost an informal thing he does, but he's building up self-efficacy slowly but surely across the organization. But because nobody ever gets made to feel small, by reporting or made to feel humiliated. It's all great. We're all participating. We're all part of this. That That is the best example I've seen of actually how this has worked.
0: Yeah. I really like that. It, it's like uh, when people do risk audits, they will say that the time the alarm should sound is when there's nothing on the risk register. Mm. You know, when, when the risk register is you know, maybe getting five, 10 entries every single week, you know that people actually do have that confidence to come mm-hmm. forward. And also they're paying attention, right? They're they're mm-hmm. actually they are aware of these mm-hmm. of these things. Um and you know where I want to go next is talk about um I guess this is this is our side of things in the in the cybersecurity vendor world. You know, many um many companies that are trying to provide solutions to organizations do rely rely quite heavily on this concept of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's even got its own acronym, right? FUD. Um, (laughs) And um, essentially, you know, FUD is is used so heavily. Um, As the saying goes, bad news sells, scary headlines, the massive data breaches dominate the media landscape. Um, And I think it's fair to say eliminating FUD is going to be tough. And there is a lot of work to do here. In your opinion, who is responsible for changing the narrative and what advice would you give to them for how they can start doing this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all are. and I, I think it definitely uh, you know, starts in, in things such as this, is having these conversations and, and trying to, um, I guess, place a little uncertainty or doubt into those decision makers and CISOs about how effective fear is. And so it's kind of flipping the script a little bit. And maybe part of it is we need a new acronym to say, well, give this a try, or this is why we think this is going to work, or this is what the research shows. Um, And this is what your peer, you know, peer organizations are doing, and they find it very effective, their employees feel more empowered. Uh, So I think a lot of it is just beginning with those conversations and trying to flip the script a little bit to start to help CISOs know, well, you know, it's always that question, It's, it's easy to, I think, criticize something. But then the bigger question is, okay, if if we're taking the use of fear and its effectiveness for granted, uh, we, being the collective we, well, then what? You know, what well, what are we going to replace it with? And um, you know, and, and a lot of it, we we know that self-efficacy is the major player there. But what's that going to look like? And I think Karen gave a great example looking at what an organization is doing, uh, which is increasing and improving levels of self-efficacy. It's 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 creating that spirit of we're all in this together, and it's this less formalized, punitive type of system. Um, and, and so looking at ways to tap into that and for one organization, it might be, uh, you, you might have a slightly different approach, but I think the concepts and stuff will be the same. Mm,
0: yeah. I think it's, a, again, it, it ties in a really important point, which is just more understanding is, is needed, I think by the, well, the layperson or, or the people that are, that are putting this out. Um, and, uh, and then I think Mark, to your point, just about this being, a collective responsibility i mean i see it as a great opportunity as well because um everyone uh i think everyone would welcome some more positivity and optimism right and if we can actually bring that to the security community which is you know generally a fearful community uh focusing mm-hmm. on defense and uh threat actors and you know all the the language the aesthetic everything is um, is generally negative, fearful, scary. Um, I think there's a great opportunity here, which is that you know it doesn't have to be that way. We can come together and we can have a much more positive dialogue and a much more positive um, response around it. There was something that I wanted to, to touch on, which, Karen, you uh, speak about in your research, this concept of cybersecurity differently. Um, and you explain, and I'm going to quote you uh, verbatim here, Um, It's so important that we change mindsets from um, the human as problem to human as solution in order to improve cybersecurity across the socio-technical system. What do you mean by that? And what are the core principles of cybersecurity
1: differently? Okay. Um, So when you treat your users as a problem, right, then that informs the way you manage them. And so then what you see in a lot of organizations, because they see their human, their employees' behaviors as a problem, they'll train them, they'll constrain them, and then they'll blame them when things go wrong. So that's their paradigm. Um, but what you're actually doing is excluding them from being part of the solution. So it creates the very problem you're trying to solve. So what you want is for everyone to feel that they're part of the security defense of the organization. So our uh, so th- I did this research with Verena Zimmermann from the University of Darmstadt, Technical University Darmstadt. Um, and so the principles are, the first one we've been speaking about a lot, encourage collaboration and communication between colleagues so that people can support each other. Uh, We want to encourage everyone to learn. It should be a lifelong learning thing. It's not just something that IT departments have to worry about. It isn't solo, as I've said before. Um, You have to build resilience as well as resistance. So currently a lot of the effort is on resisting anything that somebody could do wrong. But you don't then uh, have a way of of, of bouncing back when things do go wrong because all the focus is on sort of resistance. Um, And... You know, a lot of the time we we treat security awareness training and policies like a one fits all, but that doesn't defer to people's expertise. It doesn't go don't go to the people and say, okay, here is what we're proposing. Is this going to be possible for you to do these things in a secure way? And if not, how can we support you to make what you're doing more secure? Um, and then, you know, if people make mistakes. Uh, everyone focuses on if a phishing message comes to an organisation, people focus on the people who fell for it. But there were many, many more people who didn't fall for it. And so what we need to do is examine the successes. What can we learn from the people? Why did they spot that phishing message so that we can encourage that in the people who did happen to make mistakes? So I think that, uh, that I, got, I didn't get these ideas uh, just out of the air. I got them from three very insightful people, and one of them was Sydney Decker, who has applied this paradigm in the safety field. And what's interesting what from the previous discussion was that he got woolworths in, uh, in in australia to allow him to apply their paradigm in some of their stores so they previously had all these signs up all over the store you know, don't let people don't mess water here don't do this don't, and they had weekly training on safety safety and then he said right we're taking all the signs out what we're going to do is just say you have one job don't let anyone get hurt and the stores that applied that job they got the safety prize for woolworths that next year so, you know, just the idea that everyone realized it was their responsibility and it wasn't all about fear, you know, rules and that sort of thing. So, I thought, well, if he could do this in safety where people actually get harmed for life or or get killed, surely we can do this in cyber. So, that's kind of where and then I found a guy who ran a, a nuclear submarine in the in, uh, United States, his name is David Marquet. He applied the same thing in his nuclear submarine, which you would also think, oh my goodness, a nuclear submarine, there's so much potential for really bad things to happen. But he applied the same sort of paradigm shift and it worked. He won the prize as the best run nuclear submarine in the US Navy. So it's about being brave enough to go, actually, you know, what we're doing is not working and every year it's not working. Maybe it's time to think, well, can we do something different? But like you said, Mark, we need a brave organization to say, okay, we're going to try this. And we haven't managed to find one yet, but we will, we will.
0: And that's one of the things I wanted to close out on, um, which is I, I spoke to you at the beginning of this podcast, just how much I I love the article in the Wall Street Journal, but also just the mission that, you know, both of you are on, which is actually to improve what I see really is the relationship between people and the cybersecurity function. Um, My question to you is, you know, again, touches on that concept of how much progress have we actually made? And then uh, to close, how optimistic are you that we can actually flip the script and stop using fear appeals?
2: Yeah, I feel like we made a lot of progress, but not nearly enough. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there's, and part of the challenge too is none of the stuff is static, right? I mean, as you know all the stuff is constantly changing. The cybersecurity threats out there are changing. We're talking about so much about phishing today and social engineering. Is it going to be something different next year? And so it's always this idea of playing catch up, uh, but also you know having the the fortitude to take that step out there, to take that leap of faith that. Maybe we can do something else besides using fear, and you know, I I th- I think I am optimistic that it can. We can make a lot of progress, and for it to actually be done to you know, 100. percent I, I don't know that we'll ever get to that point, but I feel like we can make a lot of progress. And you know, looking at part of this is recognizing the fact, and you're, you're mentioning you know the sociotechnical side of this is that this isn't just a technical problem, right? And a lot of times the people we throw into cybersecurity positions. Have this very strong technical background, but they're not bringing in other uh, disciplines, perhaps from you know the 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 arts or from the from the literature or from the the humanities and um, from design considerations to try and look at this. It's a very holistic, multidisciplinary problem. If the problem is like that, well then solutions definitely have to be as well. And we have to acknowledge that and start trying to get creative mm-hmm. uh, with these solutions. And, and we need those those organizations, those brave organizations to try these, these different approaches because, you know, I, I think they'll be pleased with the results because they're probably spending a lot of time and money right now to try and make the organization more secure. They're telling their bosses, the CISOs are telling their bosses, well, this is what we're doing. We're, we're scaring them. You know, of course that works but the results don't always speak for themselves and and oftentimes the results speak for something that they're just not working. Mm
0: -hmm. And Karen, what would you add to that?
1: Well, (laughs) um, I, I just totally concur with everything Mark said. I think he's rounded this off very nicely. Um, we, we just don't want uh, cybersecurity. I, I ran a study recently where I, it was a really unusual study. We, we put old fashioned typewriters in, in coffee shops and all over. And we put pieces of paper in them. We just typed something along the top that said, when I think about cybersecurity, I feel. And we got unbelievable stuff back from people going, Oh, I don't understand it. I'm uncertain. Lots and lots of negative responses. So there's a lot of il- negative emotion around cyber and and that's not good for cybersecurity so yeah, i'd really like to see something different and you know the old saying if you keep doing the same thing without getting results there's something wrong we see it's not working this might be the best way of changing and making it work
0: i completely agree i completely agree Thank you both so much for that great discussion. I've really enjoyed going deeper as well and hearing your thoughts on on all of this. But again, as I say, I just think it's a, it's a win-win scenario on, on so many counts. Um, more positivity means better outcomes for employees. And I think it means better outcomes for the security function. Um, what I wanted to finish on, it's always quite fun when we do this, but just some quick fire questions on a few random things. Um, and this is how we get to know the humans of the RE, Human Layer Security Podcast, uh, a little bit better. Um, So, uh, Karen, I'll go to you first, but if you could invite three guests to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be?
1: Uh, The first would be Dan Ariely, who's the behavioral uh, expert at Duke University. Um, The second one would be Sydney Decker, who I've never met, but who's Work I really have enjoyed and I feel like he's got a lot to teach me. And who would the third one be? Mark. <laughs> I haven't seen Mark since 2019 when we met at a conference and we've been working virtually and it would be really cool to be able to sit down and have a meal together.
0: Definitely. I think we're we're all craving that, aren't we? Just human <laughs> contact again. Yes,
1: absolutely. <laughs>
0: And Mark, uh, we were commenting at the beginning on the awesome bookshelf that you have behind you. Um, What's your favorite book right now or what's a book you'd recommend to our audience?
2: Um, Gosh, I'm going to... Karen, please correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Uh, (laughs) There's this uh, book, Shame and and Guilt. uh, Uh. (laughs)
0: Oh, Karen's got it on her bookshelf too. If yeah, <laughs> only I had one to re- read behind me.
2: I can do that at home in my home office. But, uh, you know, and I, I think it just it piggybacks off of a lot of what we've been looking at with fear pills and some of these nuances between different negative emotions. Um, and shame and guilt are they often get confused with one another, but they're entirely different. Mm-hmm. And so I've been really fascinated with seeing uh, dissected uh, the differences between them.
0: That's great. Thank you both so much. This has been so much fun. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more human layer security insights in our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, you can visit our blog at tessian.com forward slash blog, where you'll find lots of amazing content, advice and tips. And if you enjoyed our show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts.